Knowing what body this character has really drops me. Actions, the thesaurus, that has become like a Bible. It's creative visualization that really set me free. I love actioning, very specific action verbs. This is season four of the Actor's Mind podcast. Season four style. Yeah. Season four. Season four. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome to season four, episode three of the Actors Mind podcast. My name is Ann Penner. I'm Kateri McRae. And we are so excited in this episode to have Dean Daniel slash Danny McIntosh uh, with us, who is not only a dean, but a psychologist. And in the spirit of this season, we are again inviting another psychologist to the uh, podcast so that we can favor the science or begin with the science and then respond more with our with our actor's brain. So I'm going to let Kateri introduce Danny. And thank you, Danny, for being here. So, yes, um, we will omit the slash for the rest of the episode. <laughs> and I'll just say that Danny McIntosh is a professor of psychology at the University of Denver. His research investigates emotions, coping, and the psychology of religion. More specifically, he has used self-report, behavioral coding, and psychophysiology to study things like nonverbal communication, mimicry, empathy, and social interaction in uh, broad, unselected populations, as well as in individuals on the autism spectrum. As Anne mentioned, he is currently serving, but not for much longer, I'm sure we have a day count, as the Dean of the College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences, which sometimes we abbreviate as CAUSE. So thanks for being here, Danny. It's my pleasure to be here. I've been and really excited about this collaboration for a long time, and it's wonderful to be able to be a part of it. The reason we wanted to chat with you today is because, um, you know, I'm familiar with your research, and Anne is always asking me, <laughs> Who, what, what kind of research does that person do? What about that person? Like, oh, you've mentioned this one. Like, what does that mean? And so almost every single year as we've been developing new episodes and brainstorming new topics, she always says, what about Danny? What about Danny? <laughs> Tell me what he does again. So can you just start by, in your own words, describing your research, um, especially the, the types of things you research that might relate to acting theory or practice, which in, in me sort of being somewhat familiar with the research, I think is um, really zeroed in on things like mimicry and empathy. And perhaps you can talk a little bit about what some people refer to as resonance. Okay, sure. Absolutely. The um, sort of my research story starts as an undergraduate here at the University of Denver, where I was taking a variety of classes across multiple disciplines. And a question that kept coming up uh, in religious studies, in philosophy, in psychology was – is the mind-body problem, is how is it that the mind and the body are related to each other. And I got really interested in that because it kept coming up as a, as a problem without a solution and noticing that different experts thought about it in different ways. And so what I ended up doing is a senior thesis on religion and health with the idea that how is it that our beliefs might influence our health? There was a term that was being thrown around back then called psychoneuroimmunology. Mm -hmm. And psychoneuroimmunology became sort of the, the basis of the work that I started many years ago as an undergraduate here. And in doing that, there was this sense that somehow what we think, how we engage in the world has physiological effects. And that was the basic question I was interested in. 
At the same time, there was a professor here who was uh, big in, in thinking about emotions, and emotions was an emerging area in social psychology, in psychology at that time, with a different type of approach than was sort of the traditional clinical approach to emotions. This was more of a, a social psychological um, approach to emotions, trying to get at the mechanisms of where, where emotions come from, how, what role they play. And so I got interested in emotions and religion and health, all under this rubric or with this underlying problem or question of the mind-body connection. And as I began to study that, uh, we can talk more about sort of the, um, uh, the, the religion connection later on because I think there are some elements there that are interesting, is I moved on to going to graduate school and thinking about how, how do we study emotions in these ways. And one of the questions of um, one of my advisors in graduate school was in contrast to a dominant theory at the time or, the, or kind of the consensus that was emerging was that thinking makes the emotion, that our cognitive appraisal of what is going on around us, how we think about, how we interpret what's going on around us, creates the different emotions that we have. But in contrast to that, my, my advisor had pushed back on that and said in, in his phrase, the preferences need no inferences. And that how we respond to the world doesn't require us to first interpret the world. Instead, we, um, we, we react to it in a non-cognitive type of way. And I thought this was really interesting because the preferences and inferences idea, the cognitive appraisal really was sort of a mind-body issue, right? That our mind was somehow driving what the body did. And the contrasting effect is, and this goes back all the way to, uh, to William James, is the other way of doing it, right? This early idea that somehow what our body is doing instead drives the emotion. So there's sort of these two views here. Does thinking make the emotion or does the body drive the emotion and then we sort of label it or understand it based on what's going on? And so that became sort of a fundamental question that I began looking at as, um, as a graduate student and in this emerging area of emotions. One element of that was this really, um, uh, I'm not going to say strange, but unusual outline, out-of-the-box idea that, as William James suggested, smiling could make you happy. That it's not that you smile when you're happy, it's that smiling can make you happy. And I'm going to say, let's soften that a little bit, not say that it's not that you don't smile when you are happy, but that it can be a bi-directional effect. The smiling effect can make you happy, that's not exclusive. And the, uh, my advisor, uh, Bob Zients, had an idea at that time that part of what might happen is that when we smile, it changes the flow of air into our sinuses, cooling – the <laughs> Anne is cheering at this cool, – <laughs> cooling what's going on. And what's important about that is that this is a clear non-cognitive mechanism mm -hmm. that's affecting um, affect, affecting positive or negative. So we did a number of studies that, that talked about that, that examined that. This wonderful set of studies where we worked actually in an interdisciplinary way with a researcher at the dental school who had this <laughs> – um, plexiglass hood that went over people's faces with a separate <laughs> nose mask and we put them in there so we could monitor their breathing and we could cool the air that was going into their noses and all of this was about demonstrate to me the theoretical piece that was interesting about this was can we find a way that is not clearly using cognitions mm -hmm. which can be really quick which are not intentional the cognitive view is not that you're doing some type of conscious checklist and i think it's really important to say it's not a conscious checklist it's, it's your perception of the um of the environment or of the world and um but is there a clear non-cognitive simply physical way 
to affect how we're feeling? And the answer was yes. Um, it's still, you know, it's not a complete theory of emotions, but it's a demonstration that the body and our breathing and um, our, our, our actions, our face can actually influence how we're feeling. So in this process, if we think about, well, okay, so somehow the body can influence how we're feeling. It's not all cognitive. Not that cognitive can't happen. I believe it does. But that it's not all cognitive. To me, as a, as a social psychologist, I became interested in what does this mean socially? And one of the, the – uh, a, a long-term theory that kind of comes and goes out of, out of vogue or out of, out of interest in psychology is this idea of the facial feedback hypothesis. The idea that our facial expressions may in fact drive what our emotions are. Smiling can make you happy. Scowling can make you angry. By the way, smiling does increase airflow into the nose. Scowling does actually decrease airflow into the nose. I'm not saying that's the whole thing, but there actually this, – this does go on. But there's a um, – that if that's the case, if somehow our facial expressions can influence how we're feeling – and there's a variety of different mechanisms. It could be breathing. It could be that we remember that when we've smiled before, there's this learned association between smiling and how we feel. So it may not be primary. It may be secondary. Um, it may be that people react to us differently with different facial expressions and we learn to associate that with different feelings. So there's a lot of interesting questions about mechanism. But, but, but the effect is, does, is it the case that your facial expression can influence how you feel? And there's evidence and debate back and forth. And I've been involved in that debate back and forth about whether facial expression can influence how you feel. I believe the evidence is strong that there's some influence without making the strong case that somehow this is the only way. Mm -hmm. I don't believe it's the only way, but I believe there's some influence in that. So if that's the case then, if we kind of we keep this parallel going, if it's the case that smiling makes me happy, for example, or scowling makes me angry or influences that, what does that mean socially if this other phenomenon that, that we've observed, that, that people especially in the area of nonverbal communication have observed, that we pay attention to and respond to other people's facial expressions and let's pin and their body body um, uh, uh, actions also bodily actions also that if that's the case and I see you smiling and I mimic or match that if it's also the case and that smiling makes me happy there's a social mechanism that does not necessarily or completely involve my interpreting your, your emotion that can, in fact, influence my emotions. And so then I got into the process of looking at um, how do we understand mimicry, how do we understand matching, and there's, there's a lot of different words that are thrown around here that can mean slightly different things. And one thing that's confusing about the research is sometimes the same words are used for different things sure. or sometimes different words are used for the same things. And but so it exists or it doesn't exist. How else would you possibly get credit for your research <laughs> if you didn't make up a new word didn't for it? Didn't create a new name. <laughs> one, one of the um, funny things we had with an article we were trying to publish in an interdisciplinary journal is we used the word mimicry. Yeah. But one of the viewers said, no, mimicry is biological. It's what butterflies do when they put sort of an eye on their wings. They're mimicking something. Mm. And that's not what you're talking about is it like no <laughs> that's not what we're talking about but other people use it this way and so 
Um, Kerry can talk about battles with reviewers, but there was actually a battle <laughs> about whether mimicry was only what animals did or yeah. whether people could mimic too. And to clarify, mimicry can be both conscious and unconscious? Oh, that's a great question. Okay. So when we're thinking about these, these different pieces, whether it be behavioral matching or synchrony or resonance or mimicry, the primary way that I've been thinking about it is non-conscious, that it's some type of automatic response that people engage in that has this effect. And, and that, it's a great question because one thing that, that we found is that when people try to intentionally match, it's slower. Mm. When we do things intentionally, it tends to be slower and um, – you know, people talk about being aped or mm-hmm. something, which is actually when people do that, it can create a negative relational mm-hmm. um, situation where you feel like someone is matching you. Mm. Or if you try to do it, the timing can be off in a way that's a problem. And again, something to think about later is it's a study I wish I had done prior <laughs> to the pandemic is mm-hmm. where we would take um, videoed in, video interactions and play around with the delay in what um, mm-hmm. in, in, in the video and the audio. And now, of course, you've all wow. experienced that sure. through Zoom. You but, could still manipulate it. I think you could. I mean, you could still go for a, you know, go right, for kind four of, or five different kind levels of parameterize of it, yep, that to, right to show that, it, that there's a parametric response. So that'd be still. I think that's still worthwhile. Yeah. So I think so. Maybe that's what I'll be doing next. But it's something <laughs> where we're trying to get at this difference about the intentional versus the unintentional. Doing that, so there's this unintentional process, which is the primary thing that I that I've looked at in terms of trying to understand, mm-hmm. understand that's that, that's 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 one piece um, that's interesting there. That intentionality, and in looking at a variety of different populations, one of the differences among people is how automatic that is. Yeah, and some individuals with on the autism spectrum have indicated that it doesn't seem as automatic to them. Yeah, and one of the questions is why those interactions are are different. Uh, for though for all the individuals involved in them, is that this can be something where if you're not picking up on it or not engaging in it, it can make for a more social interaction because there's some channels of beha- some channels of communication that aren't as um, aren't as shared in that area, and, and that one, can make a difference. And I'm wondering if presumably the the more intimate you are, romantically, platonically, familially <laughs> with someone, does it happen more automatically? And then maybe when you're meeting someone for the first time, it's a little more intentional because you're orienting yourself to to that person. I'm just thinking as an actor playing a character, deciding how close they are to mm-hmm. that other character, right? And that reactions can be more spontaneous if they know each other well. You know, that, that, that's great. And again, there, there's lots of interesting questions um, around that. It's, it seems clearly the case across multiple ways of doing it is that the more you're in a positive relationship with someone, the more automatic, huh. the more complete, the more spontaneous you are in doing that. And the other part is if you want to be in a relationship with someone, you also tend to do it. So it's yeah. both the presence of relationship yeah, yeah. and wanting to be in relationship yeah. that you tend to do it. Again, even automatically. You could um, – hmm. If you were to videotape people who are meeting, I think it would be predictable how attracted they are, how much they want to have a, a longer-term relationship, romantic or non-romantic, right, mm-hmm. relationship, how much resonance there is by the extent to which they engage in that and how much they want to. And that's been manipulated. We've looked at that. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a confession here. So I've known Danny since I came to DU. Um, he was um, in the department when I first joined, and then he became chair before he became dean. 
And um, we've always had a lot of shared research interests. So actually, Bob Zients moved to the institution where I was an undergrad, right. and I took my first emotion class as an undergrad <laughs> from him and got to hear about all... It was like only a few years before he passed away, and so like he actually like... It was sort of more of like a tour of his life like than anything else, which like that makes for a great emotion class. There's not yeah. a lot of people you can say that about. Yeah. But um, so knowing that Danny studied this for the first several years, I knew Danny. He was in a position of more experience to me. His opinion of me really mattered. And I could not stop thinking about mimicry every time we met together. <laughs> so I had this constant stream of like, I'm having this interesting conversation with this person. And also he just scratched his head. Did I just scratch my head? I'm not sure. He's leaning forward. I'm going to lean back. And then he knows I'm not trying to mimic him. And I was like, it eventually went away. Um, okay. I think, that is great. I think the glass between us helps right now. Um, but for at least like when I was very, very junior and new in the, yeah. new, new in the department, like I was like, okay, you're meeting with Danny. Like just ignore. He doesn't yeah. my and my reappraisal of the situation to get through it was he can't tell. He has no <laughs> idea that you are in this mimicry, like don't do too much, don't do enough, like be natural <laughs> Yeah, like, you, sort of. you, you really did get better over time, I noticed. <laughs> 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 I just say this intentional, unintentional binary, I don't know if it is a binary, uh, gets up to me the crux of the paradox of acting, yeah. which is mm -hmm. when you are learning lines and you're figuring out staging, it's extremely intentional, it's extremely time consuming, and it should be slowed down. And oh. then, in terms of lines, lines become automated, you can speak them faster, the thoughts... Um, uh, come sort of more unintentionally. They become more automatic. And then in terms of movement and in terms of response, it's the intentional in a way becomes unintentional so that you are presenting a scene or a story as if for the first time spontaneously, but of course it's been rehearsed a hundred times. So this is a question I had when I was thinking about doing this is in trying to mark the relationship between characters, do you intentionally synchronize or desynchronize movements or reactions because that would be a way of communicating that but I hadn't even thought of that it just occurred to me that that might be something that you're you're doing while acting I would say that that is happens a, uh, more explicitly with expressive performance you know almost like um, heightened performative non-realistic work okay. where we would play with the idea of repetition and mirroring in a more abstracted way and less about the psychological realism between the people. One thing we found is, is that we did um, – we're curious about whether this relation effect was automatic or not, right? If mimicry is automatic and relationship influences mimicry, how automatic is that, that type of mm. – especially because we know things can influence it, like wanting to be in relationship with someone. Mm. So we had people – we looked at mimicry – with people um, that they we had manipulated the relationship between them. We made them likable, not likable, or neutral. Oh. Um, and and uh, a person, then they watched a videotape so we could time uh, with uh, EMG electromyography that. And then we put them under cognitive load or not under cognitive load. So what that, what that means is either they're, they're having to memorize a small number or a large number during that period of time. The question being, if you do it while you're under load, it, it's, it's more automatic, right? Um, mm. So what we mm. found is that for people who are positive um, and um, you would automatically match them either way, but in a neutral relationship, it went down under load. Uh -huh. So that suggests there's some type of um, 
intentionality. I don't know, Kachiri can maybe help me as a cognitive <laughs> scientist. She can probably help me with, with this. But there's something going on where there's this automaticity in terms of matching the smiles of those that you are in, that you like or want to be, or mm-hmm. like. But we also probably go in around, and this might be personality differences in this, of how much we do it to people we're neutral on. Do we try and mm-hmm. do that or not? And I think that Huh. So we do do that, and then as actors, I'd be interested in sort of how you how you think about that too, and how you try to manage that. Yeah. So I feel I, we didn't discuss this beforehand, but I feel a little bit like my role is a translator. <laughs> and like as Danny was even describing things, I was like sitting here and being like, well, first of all, I was like, Anne could probably just go like based on <laughs> everything you've just said. <laughs> Anne would like she just could, has probably lots of things even to talk in the about. bio. There were about <laughs> twenty words where I said. Please explain this. Let's talk about this. (laughs) So, and then what Anne has hinted at, but I don't know if she said um, exactly, and I know that you've had some experience in theatrical settings, so you might have done some of this, but it is actually a really common exercise, Mm -hmm. uh, more common in more classroom settings, but also potentially in rehearsal, to just have two people sit for several minutes and mirror each other and Mm -hmm. mimic each other and practice that. And... Um, what's interesting, what I was thinking of is if, if it's not, if just telling somebody your job is to mimic, you know, someone else does not produce the level of natural, spontaneous, quick, um, responses, my instant thought is how do you hack that? Because on stage you can't, um, you might happen upon a scene partner that you like or admire, but how do you, you know, you know, one one acting hack would be again to sort of dive into the character and to really try to be living in the, you know, in the what if in which you do want to be with that person. But there might be shortcuts. So there was one um, scene I did when I was in college that the instruction I got when I redid the scene. Mm. What the 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 director the the um, teacher for the class came over and whispered my ear and she said, "Kateri, after you do this scene, I'm going to have you sit and do your scene partner's role, mm-hmm. and I want you to do it every detail the way he did it, every detail." Mm-hmm. And this did two things at once. One, it got me out of my head because I was like, ah, no, no, self conscious, you know, 19 year old Kateri, and. It got me so dialed into him, and she didn't say mimic him, but I will give you $20 if I didn't mimic him more when my goal sure. was yeah. to be able to reproduce his actions. Well, what, yeah. One of the theories about why relationship makes a difference is attention. Do we yeah. pay more attention to individuals yeah. when, when we like them? And and what your instructor did, right, is have you pay more attention yeah. to and there's act- And there's two relationships going on on stage, right? It's character to character. And a character, if it's an antagonistic relationship, might not want to mimic, right? But actor to actor requires tremendous attentiveness. And this, of course, you know, we've, we've talked about Meisner, which, have, do you know, Danny, do you know, have you heard about the Meisner, Sanford Meisner no, technique? No. So the, the, I don't know that much about it. Um, but I can speak a little bit to it, uh, which is Sanford Meisner was a uh, famous acting teacher in the second half of the 20th century at a, a school in New York. And it's all about, it's called acting is reacting, right? Is okay. is the proverb, is the adage. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in a really kind of superficial way, if Kateri and I are playing a scene, we might not even use text. I might say, uh, Kateri, your hair looks nice today. Right. And she would have to say, my hair looks nice today. Let's do it. Okay. But she's trying to repeat all the different colors of how I'm saying it. Right. Okay. So uh, we won't spend too much time. <laughs> but in a proper Meisner class, you would spend hours doing yeah, right. this. Right. Uh, Kateri, I really like your mask. 
You really like my mask. I, I really like your mask. You really like my mask. Yeah, and if we were to keep going, right? <laughs> right now it seems sort of silly, yeah. but um, you know, if you spend a long time working on this, you really drop the bullshit, mm-hmm. right? You drop the kind of like superficiality, expressiveness, and you really hone in on the scene partners, right. more minute um, expressiveness. One, one thing just that, that, that you emphasize there that, that comes up is that the mimicry is is not just physical, right? It's also the verbal, the yes. intonation, the, the, yeah. the, even the pacing of words are things that um, that make a difference. Even watching people's lips help you understand them because you match in that type of thing. Yeah. So. Can, can you say a little? I think I sort of it put things together that maybe you didn't say explicitly, but maybe you did. Can you talk a little bit about how this, um, at least partially non-conscious. Um, and often automatic process of matching, um, how that relates to the broader construct of empathy. Uh, yeah, yeah. So basically is that because to the extent, if you go back to the mind-body problem, right, to the extent that it's a silly question, we are our bodies, right? So let's just get past that that undergraduate formulation of, of, of the mind-body problem, right? So the idea is that if we're embodied, we are our bodies. Therefore, our bodies... Um, change how we feel, right? Our feeling is 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 this bi-directional, this, this sort of fully embodied piece. And so if I'm matching uh, your every, anything about you, that I can begin to feel what you're feeling, right? So that, that, that's the final step. Yeah, I think that didn't we get to, Kateri, is, is that therefore I'm feeling what you're feeling. You're smiling, I'm smiling. Now, now the empathy has occurred because that mechanism has happened, allowing me to feel what you're feeling. And I just emphasize, it's, it's not just positive-negative, there can be a lot more, and when we study the wide variety of ways bodies can communicate, it can be motion and tension. It can be different types of emotions. Uh, we've looked at how the face communicates some types of emotions, the body communicates other types of emotions, and touch communicates other types of emotions. And so all those things can play a role in that as well as like motion and tension. Dominance, obviously, is something else that's a part of that. I have gotten clearer and clearer about empathy this season. But I think something that still confused me is the relationship between my original, what I think is sort of a naive view of empathy, which is me, as you just stated, actually having some of the sensations or emotions of the person I'm empathizing with versus just cognitive or even, uh, what is it, emotional empathy, maybe, or maybe it's just cognitive, where I simply understand but maybe don't feel it. What I hear you saying is if I physically do something that mimics what you're doing, I can actually have the same lived experience as that person. Yeah, same, wow. same, same is a powerful term, and I'm, 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 gonna kinda, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go all the, all the, all, all the, all the way there, um, although there's a, a performance story I have about that. But the... Um, yeah, so the cognitive empathy is understanding, but really what I'm interested in and what I've been focusing on is actually mm. feeling what the other person yeah. is feeling. Um, I want to tell you something about smiling. That's why I was cheering and freaking out when uh-huh. you talked about smiling. Yeah. I teach Kristen Linklater's voice technique, and I got to interview her at the end of last season. She's one of the most world-famous uh, voice teachers who passed away last year. And I'm teaching it right now, and a lot of the exercises she has a smile because what it does is it opens up the channel for sound. So even though, of course, our lungs are doing the breathing, but she envisions, you know, she um, has us imagine that the breath is and the sound is initiating all the way down in our belly. And so if you smile and you do a bunch of other things, it opens up. There's literally more space for your breath and your sound to come out. And therefore, your sound is freer. It's not stuck 
which could lead to feeling happier. And it becomes simply, you become a more expressive person. So the one question I had is like, mm. what does it mean in how, if I change what my face is doing or perhaps another body part, what does it mean? How does that change my ability to express? And that to me, both vocally and actually physically as an actor is really valuable. And mm -hmm. that gets into sort of the relationship of tension and relaxation. And we won't go yeah, down that, but it was interesting to hear you talk about smiling and then it, it links directly to, you mentioned breath, but mm -hmm. just more breath equals more relaxation usually, mm -hmm. which actually equals more volume in your body for sound to come out. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the thing that I just wrote down too is there's been the both in, actually primarily in cognitive terms, there's been this recognition that um, positivity is broad, broader. Most negative emotions are narrow and focused, right? And if you think about emotions functionally, uh, negative emotions serve a purpose to decrease the number of behaviors that you are considering so that you can be more likely to do the one that is uh, adaptive that will potentially save your life. And positive emotion is not, most positive emotion is not as narrowing. It's broadening. And so it's interesting for you to say that physically, yeah. it, it, it also opens up more possibilities because yeah. that's been demonstrated cognitively yeah. as well. And that even an actor will appear larger on stage mm -hmm. if their voice is coming out of them with freely. Yeah. 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 And they've done these studies of, uh, of animal vocalizations, too. That, so larger animals make larger sounds. Yeah. And yeah. they've done these studies where they play animal vocalizations and they have you guess how big the animal is and people <laughs> are really good at it. There's a lot of information contained in, in, right. in sound. And we can modulate that through the bodies, right? And this, yeah. this is, and this is what's so important about it is not – we are social animals. Right, and so we're we're picking up these cues from others about are are they are they happy or they are they dominant or they, all of this comes from the embodied response to to what they're doing, both complementary as well as matching. Mm. Wait, both complementary? Oh, complementary meaning not ma matching. Sorry, right. when I hear compliment, I think match. But oh no. yeah, no, yeah, it, it's if, if I cower to your dominant stance, then mm -hmm. that would be a complementary. Complementary, yeah. great. Yeah. And just real fast, synchrony and resonance were two words that popped up. Mm. Are those synonymous with mimicry? Question. Synchrony often has to do with the temporal component, right? That I'm that I'm I'm matching, you know, the tapping of my my foot or or nodding as we're doing right now, sort of, you know, this type of thing. <laughs> that that that's synchrony, behavioral synchrony. Uh, mimicry, mm. the, the way I tend to use it, is much more of a, a configural type of matching for what's going on, smiling to smiling. Um, okay. Or crossing legs as as we're doing here, you know, matching our cross Darn legs. It. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing it again, You're doing it again I stopped monitoring, and look what happened. <laughs> so, great. Can you talk to you about your experience as dean of arts and humanities and social sciences, and how that has um, increased your awareness or curiosity of the, all the various different ways of knowing in a liberal arts setting, and yeah, just how it's changed your thinking? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's been um, one of the best things about being dean is is working with experts across multiple diverse fields um, and looking at what they're teaching and what they're. What their what their practice is and what their scholarship and their research is, and um, talking with students stuff. So it's been it's been fabulous. I think most relevant to to the conversation here is, is my experience um, in, with the arts, with the artists in in the college. And I've always been an appreciator of the arts. Um, and what's been fun is 
being able to be a part of the artistic process from an earlier point mm. because we do talk about funding earlier ideas. And so I've been able to see how artists think about things from the beginning to the end before I would sort of appreciate the end or maybe come in at some point. But it's been so exciting to see, and this is why I love how you talk about the ways of knowing, is it really is coming from a place of of investigation, of experimentation, of learning experientially, tactily, um, from a sensory standpoint, and having students experience that and having them experience that in a much more embodied way than oftentimes scholarship in the humanities or research in the social sciences is. And so to be a part of that and see how it changes, how they think, how they communicate that, what happens in classes with that has been just really, really cool and amazing and just so impressive to me about seeing that whole interplay. We talk a lot in um, in scholarship about the conversation in the field, right? What's the question? What's your contribution? What's the back and forth? To see the conversation going on artistically and to be a part of that and observe that has been has been tremendous. And the value that students get in the observation they have and how they are in the world and how they are in their bodies because of their experience in the arts, I think is tremendously valuable. It's been really exciting to see that. Mm, that made me really happy. Good. Are there any direct – are there any similarities to how artists collaborate or do their scholarship or creative work and a social scientist or a – Hard scientist? I don't know if it's called hard. In other oh, words, I don't think anyone would call us hard scientists. Well, no, I, I think social the, well I, 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 I distinguish between the hard scientists and the difficult ones. <laughs> Excellent. I'm wondering if even though they're very different and we do celebrate the, the different ways of knowing, if there is any link where we can say, well, artists do that and scientists do that. Yeah, and I, and I think that, um, I mean, two elements are – they're both very social and community-based You're in everyone, regardless of whatever the stereotypes are about the biologist at the bench or, right. you know, the psychologist in, in the – with the one-way mirror <laughs> or, or whatever. Everyone's in a community, working in a community. That's where progress comes from. So there, there's mm. a sociality to it. The other thing is creativity is not limited to the arts, and I think, I think mm-hmm. we all know that. Mm-hmm. But when you look at scientists across all the different types of scientists and across all the humanities – they're deeply creative, deeply social, deeply conversational, and the people who are best in those areas, in my opinion, are those who are not constrained to the discipline. There really is a value in the depth and the breadth. And there's a lot of conversations about we need to do more interdisciplinarity. The stereotypes of faculty as being you get so narrow, narrow you're just talking about you know, the inside of this walnut in that area. What I found across all the disciplines in cause, um, as well as the, the ability of working with folks across the university, is that the most successful scholars and faculty who are really deep into something, when you go deep enough, it's interdisciplinary. Mm. Uh-huh. You can't go deep into something without being multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary. So the best folks are doing that, maybe at the beginning, but always when they deeply get into something, those boundaries disappear. Mm. And that's why collaborations are so exciting mm-hmm. and why you see faculty from across multiple areas wanting to hear the research and the scholarship and going to performances because to them, those experiences are part of what they're doing and inform what they're doing. You know, one thing Anne might not know is that for much of the history of social psychology, a great amount of social psychology experimental design is incredibly theatrical, incredibly mm-hmm. performative, and there's a lot of 
training experimenters and confederates. So if you ever have a design where there is a false um, and controlled social interaction, you have to train one of the experimenters to be a yeah. pretend other participant. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's, it's acting coaching to, to train yep. undergrads. Okay. Yes. You have to pretend like you're new here. Um, you know, don't yep. call the experimenter by their name. Cause you just met them. Like, <laughs> you know, it's like yeah, all of this right. very, um, and I remember once in one of the first studies I did when I got to DU, I was um, training the same group of participants to distinguish between enhancing positivity and to d- diminishing negativity. And it was really tricky because a lot of people use those terms interchangeably. And we had done a previous experiment where we had done two different groups and trained them on this, but we really wanted the same person to do it. Mm. And I was training my very first graduate student to be the experimenter to explain this difference. And I was giving her no- I, I watched her do it and then I gave her notes like it was a rehearsal. And the notes were things like, when you talk about expanding positivity, I want you to reach up and I want you to, I want you to use long, yeah. you know, elongate your vowels to say, how great could it be? And when you talk about dis- ne- negativity, yeah. make it dismissive, throw it away, put it to the ground, slump down, make yourself small. Yeah. And I'm sure she thought I was absolutely bonkers yeah. for giving her like postural notes on how to deliver these experimental, you know, instructions. But to me, it was really important to capture the different energy of, <gasps> how good could this situation possibly be versus, yeah. eh, it's probably not that yeah. bad. Right. And, and yeah. by the posture actually affecting then what the other person is feeling, right? right? I mean, that's the other part oh. of it in that relationship. Right. Yeah. yeah, maybe I was cheating a little bit there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'm, work, I'm working with my colleague Rick, Rick Barber right now on a one-woman show called Grounded, and he always says, he actually just said it today, like, these notes that I'm giving you, they're – he doesn't say take it with a grain of salt, but they, they kind of end with you. Like if they work, you put them in your body, you try it. If it works, we'll keep it. You put it in your body, you try it, it might not work. You, the actor, physicalizing it, embodying it, actually knows, right? right? And I guess perhaps with the more experience, the better the actor is at kind of understanding and reading right. that. Right. But it, it re- you don't make a final acting choice on the page. You have to make it in your body, in right. your voice. Mm. Um, and even then, one more quick point is that moment, that particular line will shift nightly. So it is not necessarily always the same embodied moment. Right. And, and, and wouldn't it also be the case if it's not a one-woman show is that that's happening then with everyone on stage, that you are affecting yes. then the responses of the other person. Yes. And that's as you embody it, yes. that draws on yes. the other person. And what will happen with this is I've only done it for him, but it's the fourth wall is broken. Yeah. So I'm constantly in relationship to the audience. Right. Mm-hmm. So how the audience responds or looks at me or doesn't look at me or laughs or gasps or is dead, silent, whatever, that will actually affect how I right. do the next step. Which is why yeah. teaching on Zoom is a nightmare. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. thrilled to be in person. <laughs> You you said you had a story about, oh, yeah. um, about how a shared emotion uh, related to a performance of some sort. Sure, this is uh, what what came to mind when I was doing that is um, when I was a a young adult. I um, um, it, was, it was a friend of a friend did a a. I had the car, so I took them to Chicago. Because I had the car, I was invited to go along with the cool kids to blues bars, yeah. right? I was not a cool kid, but sort of I had the car. <laughs> and so this was my first experience with um, with really intimate blues bars, but any blues bars, actually. <laughs> and, and, you know, the evening was multiple bars, um, going to these places, hearing these singers. And we got to this one where we were kind of crammed behind the stage. Of course, it was pre-COVID. It was just, it was packed you know, shoulder to shoulder, yeah. but I was really, really close to the performer. And yeah. so it wasn't distance. I was right there. I could see the sweat 
going down her face, every, every movement, even seeing the breathing that was going on. And it was, it was a transformative experience. Being that close, mm-hmm. I felt a connection in a way that I hadn't felt. And, and to me, it was just, this happens in great performances. But I think it's because I was so close. Um, yeah. And just and and just the skill of the performer you know in yeah. in, in what she was doing but this is incredibly powerful and the, and the the deep emotion that she was conveying not just the words but with but, but with the rhythm and with her movement and with her breathing and with the intonation and probably you know the other 100 people that were all crammed next also also sure. doing that but to me that is sort of that power of that intimate close live performance that I felt something I don't think I would have been able to embody and feel if I hadn't been that close. Yeah. And to me, that's part of the power. So I think about that in terms of that power. And that makes me think about this work. Again, we're doing this movement and voice class. A student, um, I had the students present what are called sensation physicalities, where mm-hmm. they take a physical or cognitive or emotional sensation and they show it to us physically. And this one guy did grief. He had recently attended a funeral. Yeah. And I, I asked him about grief because I'm fascinated with any of these physicalizations of these. And he said, actually, what I noticed when I, when I, you know, in the past week is actually with all the breathing work we've been doing with Linklater, that his, gr- his grief is more embodied and his grief is dropping, you know, deeper into his torso <laughs> just because mm-hmm. he's practicing breathing. And I think the great performances, this idea of mimicry and embodiment is, is it depends, the greater the performance, arguably, the more facility you have, the, the, the more facility you have with more of your body. Mm-hmm. So that some of the great performers are aware of what the whole body is doing, or at least what the whole torso is doing. Whereas maybe a, a greener performance might be more sort of the neck up. Yeah. And therefore, you're actually getting less information. And I realize one of the objectives of acting one, introductory acting class at DU, majors, lots of non-majors, is the first couple of weeks is just getting these students to play games and to look each other in the eye and to actually be physically present. That we spend so much mm-hmm. time as human beings desiring not to be present or nervous right. about actually being present or not even sure we have the skills to be present. Right. And yeah, yeah no, I, and I think that is to, to me part of what is the power of of, of acting training, right? Is is, is that um, the kind of the full body listening that's going on, like with improv, right? You are not just you're not just listening. I'm, I'm pointing to my ear; no one can see me. I'm pointing to my ear. You're not just listening. <laughs> you're really paying attention and responding with the full body, right? It's really present to the whole person, and I think that is um, that's a tremendously valuable skill. And it's also something that I think is um, what makes what you're watching on stage real and present and active in a way that it's not when it's not them. Yeah. I have I have an off script question. Go for it. Can you, you say a little? You've talked a little bit about um, sort of one on one experiences of of sharing emotion, and we've talked about how that might relate on stage. And maybe I suspect this might tie in potentially to some of your religion psychology of religion work Mm -hmm. can you talk about the phenomenon of shared experience as an audience member and like the synchrony that might happen in like an audience full of people and especially like you know what you just the what you just described you know i was just thinking um i always have such a heightened more heightened experience when i'm in a packed broadway house because you're literally like elbow to elbow with like you know the couple from illinois that also like flew in that day (laughs) versus like in the buell which is a gorgeous space in denver it has the luxury of being really spread out. It's not like, you know, luxurious, but like you're not, you know, you don't know what the other person had for lunch. So mm-hmm. 
How, like, can you talk about shared audience experiences? Yeah, which, which is why the new theaters, movie theaters that separate you, I think, are problematic because you don't have that yeah. the same experience. Oh, but anyway. I disagree. In movies, <laughs> who cares? There's, there's because that's an asynchronous experience anyway. With the oh, but it's with not the for the group. Anyway, so <laughs> okay. yeah, so the but I but I think I want to be able when, to hit loud. When I was thinking about um, when I was thinking about religion, I. I, I one thing I mentioned is sort of religious practice, right? And 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 it was religion and coping. And part of what, part of how religion assists can assist with coping is mm. by creating narratives and stories that give meaning, sharing those narratives and stories with others, and then in a communal fashion. And and you mentioned you know group singing, for example. There, there, there's increasing research talking about that. Um, other group actions where you are putting yourself in synchrony with the other person, I think is very much a part of that communal religious experience. So that is shared, I think, in theater. Part of what theater does is create shared narratives that you're experiencing in a synchronous way and then participating in with other people. And so I'm not sure of saying that religion and theater are identical, but I think there's mm. these elements, Kateri, that you bring up that's really good that is – that can change you. And then one question I have is how does that change later behavior? Mm-hmm. Part of that is also the empathy that you get from sharing stories that are different from your own story. Mm-hmm. And then I think part of the power of theater is also both in an embodied and then in the cognitive piece also of understanding that narrative and that different experience. And part of what theater can do, I think, is drive that. That provides you mm-hmm. with a cognitive framework for understanding others' experiences and an experiential framework at the same time of understanding those experiences that are blended. So I think that's part of the power of theater, and I think it's also something where theater can help you cope and understand the world, and I think that's why it can become a, um, a very powerful experiential type of thing that you're doing as a group and with, with theater folk. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> I'm so glad that was recorded and I can listen to that. Yeah. And one of our one of our guests earlier this season is um, Talia Goldstein, who is uh, she's a de- developmental psychologist, but um, almost all of her work is to test the 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 sort of prediction that you just laid out that oh. the process of embody specifically embodying other people's stories engenders empathy more broadly and she tests it in things like randomized uh controlled designs for kids taking acting classes and that's things great like that. yeah. it's yeah. pretty freaking pretty yeah. freaking she basically has like an acting lab yeah that's, that's <laughs> yeah. superb yeah, yeah. yeah. exactly yeah. danny do you have any specific plans or hopes for future research um, um yeah, yeah uh, to do more um <laughs> sure. no i mean actually the question that kateri asked is is part of what i've been thinking about and that is um, thinking about religious practice in a way. There's certainly been there's a lot of work on mindfulness, right? That's sort of been sure. this this, and, and there's we don't have to get into kind of controversies and issues around that. But it's sort of there's some technique that maybe creates some change in people's lives. This practice that at least has its origin in, in some type of cultural or a spiritual tradition. I'm interested in the social piece of that. Kind of going back to the very beginning is to me it's not just what happens individually, but what's going on socially. So when I think about things like the shared singing that happens in some traditions in in religious experiences, or even share other shared nonverbal experiences, or postural changes that occur when you look at um, for prayers, there are different postures that mm. one engages in. And to what extent does the physical posture that's part of that religious spiritual practice influence what what the uh, practitioner gets from that? So I would love to to think about – and I'm just playing around with ideas about what are religious or spiritual practices? 
What impact do they have on some of these very basic empathy and, and emotional processes? And there's certainly work that's been done in that area. So one of the first things as a researcher is I need to go catch up on the literature about what's being done. I think a lot of it is focused on um, at least a lot of the, the, the majority of the work has focused on sort of meditative types of techniques. So I think it's great, which is really interesting um, in thinking of, of from being present to even cognitive control and interpreting things. But I think there's a lot more um, a lot more ore to mine there and a lot mm. more approaches to think about what's going on and what role it might play. Then ultimately what I'd be interested in is how do we take this in – a, um, in a social justice direction. How does that empathy actually make a difference in engagement with social justice types of activities? What gets translated from my own self and how I feel mm. to taking action in the world in particular ways? We can't wait to have you back in psychology, I'm Danny. looking forward to it. One thing that, that you made me think about when you're talking about getting students to sort of engage and use their whole bodies and not, not just the face yeah. in terms of acting – is we've um, we, we recently did a study where we looked at people who were normally um, um, you know fully mobile and functional and constraining them um, in a chair actually with the chest band so they couldn't move and then asking them to exp- express emotions mm-hmm. and what we found is probably not surprisingly that although confidence didn't vary much that the perception of others is that there was difficulty in expressing um, dominant emotions, right? Different, different types of emotions are expressed in different ways. Dominant emotions um, from, from shame, anger, you know, that's, mm. can, you know, can be related to body. They weren't able to be expressed in the same way. Mm. And it leads to a whole host of questions. Mm. Certainly individuals who are in wheelchairs, there's all sorts of, you know, stereotypes and, and mm. social experiences they have. But one of them is in conversations, not being able to um, in the same way experience dominance, right? Sort of the, the, the stereotype situation is is one where people don't see their social status in, in an accurate way, mm-hmm. partly because of how we encode um, height differences and movement mm-hmm. differences. And I think about that in terms of um, there's a, I think there's a lot of investigation there in whether how much you are familiar with individuals who have different types of physical differences and how they express emotions. How do you – we talked about individuals knowing someone. You asked earlier, Anne, about, about people in relationship with those with autism mm-hmm. and what, what's the, the different experiences of those with autism perceiving the world and those without autism perceiving the world and those with autism, for example. I think about what does this mean in terms of trying to – if we've been socialized to learn that emotions are expressed in some way or if mm. there's an evolutionary piece to that, um, I think about the um, – you're probably familiar with family here in Denver. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I would just love to hear their experiences as actors in trying to translate some of that um, and, and, and cross some of those experience boundaries. If the audience is not – does not have the experiences, how do, you, how do you translate that both in their own lives and then the experiences they have? As actors, I think there, I think there's expertise there that I'd love to, to hear about in terms of some of these issues we've talked about. Sure, and we, um, yeah. in, we haven't revisited this in a while, but we, uh, we actually um, had a couple of interviews in, I guess, one in season one and one season two that um, talked about sort of both training and um, experience in terms of of disability and casting and casting, yeah, yeah, yeah. and needing. Um, uh, Reagan Linton, who was one of our guests in the f- uh, s- 
season one, who has been the artistic director of Family, talked a lot about going to graduate school and having conversations with the movement instructor about adjusting the guidelines so that she was still having the same lived experience, or she was still doing the same assignment that everyone else right. was. She uses a wheelchair, but of course was not necessarily externally doing the same thing right. that was being asked of the other Damn, actors. Wonderful. Yeah. 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 Thank you, Danny. Thanks for your time. I'm now thinking about a hundred different things. Thanks it's, to it's you. It's been a pleasure. Thank Yay. you so much. Yay. Yeah. Take care. Okay. Thank you for listening. We want to thank our amazing uh, podcast team, Jonathan, Michael, Jennifer, Cami, all of our guests, and some funding from the College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences. And finally, this amazing recording studio in the Lamont School of Music on campus. All of that is at the University of Denver. 